0: The Home Show with Sinead Ryan on News Talk. Welcome to The Home Show podcast with me, Sinead Ryan. Coming up this week, from hive to home, I'll be chatting to Cork-based Swedish beekeeper, Hannah Backmo. The average Irish home takes six months to build and costs 350000 A modular home costs half the price and is faster. So are they one answer to the housing shortage? We're bang in the middle of our new bank holiday in honour of St Bridget's. I'll be attempting to make a St Bridget's cross. And Niamh will be sharpening her knives and forks and chatting all things cutlery. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, you can do so by emailing thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you'll find me on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. And of course, you can always listen live on a Saturday morning at eight o'clock. Now, you are very welcome along uh, this morning on this auspicious weekend, our New Bank holiday and of course, for St. Bridget's Day. Now, did you celebrate St. Bridget's Day? Law, fail, of Rita? Are you planning anything special for Monday, our newest bank holiday? Maybe you're meeting with some girlfriends or playing, um, planning on having a nice lunch. Uh, Do you see it as a festival celebrating women or the feminist icon that some people think of when they think of Bridget? Or Maybe it's just a day off and not even that. Maybe you're just looking for a lie in. Well, We'll be talking later on about St. Bridget, and I will be attempting to make a St. Bridget's cross in studio. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but let me know what you think. Do we have too many bank holidays? Maybe we don't have enough, or maybe they're all bunched at the wrong end of the year. I'd love to know your thoughts on that and indeed on all things St. Bridget. And you can do that by getting in touch with us on text at 53106 or by contacting us by email at the homeshow at newstalk.com. And you're very welcome along to the show. Now, first up today, Hannah Backmo is a Swedish cork-based beekeeper who started her business, Hannah's Bees, as a passion project and now sells products from furniture polish to candles at home and abroad. And Hannah joins me now on the line. Hannah, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Thank you, Sinead. Good morning. Good morning. Now, listen, that's quite the left turn. Um, How did you find yourself in cork and how did you find yourself working with bees?
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a lot of questions. And we have to go back a, a few years. I, I came from, from Sweden about 20 odd years ago. I met somebody like most foreigners who end up in Ireland, you know, <laughs> we f- follow love and end up here. Um, and I started working with wedding dresses. That's what I did for, for nearly 20 years. I was making wedding dresses. And then I Started gardening, and I had this urge to get bees. <laughs> so um, I uh, I got I got uh, got myself into a uh, beginner's course in beekeeping, and uh, I got bees just to help me with uh, with pollinating all the the food that I was growing in my garden, and then I. I got hooked. <laughs> that's
0: the, that's the short, short journey. So wedding dresses, uh, like mm-hmm. that's such an unusual thing to change into. And was it just the gardening was your hobby? And then like lots of people, and we interview lots of them on the show, they just do something that starts out as a little hobby, becomes a cottage industry, and then it kind of becomes overwhelming and takes over their life. Is that what happened with you? Absolutely. <laughs>
1: Absolutely and I, I don't regret any of it. it it you know beekeeping it easily turns into an obsession all you do is you, you think about bees you talk about bees and you see bees everywhere and that is what happened to me I started with uh three hives my first year and then it just grew from there and now I have somewhere between 50 and 60 colonies uh, to keep me very busy.
0: (laughs) Well and busy it does keep you because Mm. they do take a lot of looking after and a lot of maintenance but I think when we think of bees uh, I mean they've been fascinating us for centuries you know, sociologists yeah. and two economists nearly have have kind of, they watch their movements and how they dance and how they move around their queen. What is it about them that fascinates you?
1: Oh, I, everything. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's, it's for me, obviously, I, I work with Uh, the products that they produce you know honey and beeswax, and that that's an amazing gift you know that they can give us and it's it's very you know obviously very healthy and, and very natural products as well but it's also it's the it's the pollinating services it's their their dynamic within the hive you know how they talk to each other how they communicate and as you said you know sociologists they'd be looking at how do bees uh, make decisions you know they don't make decisions for themselves they're not you know they're not individualistic they make decisions for the whole group you know for, for the best of the group um, and that's very fascinating kind of when you look at these like that um, they, they, they do things for the good of the community and not just for the good of themselves if you know what I mean.
0: Mm. So there's, there's probably a lot we could learn from the way that bees conduct mm. themselves. And a, okay. I, you were saying there that, you know, there's so many different products that can mm. come from bees. So it's not just yeah. the honey, obviously, although that's mm. the bit we like and it's very important. Why? Tell, tell us a little bit about some of the other products then that you have. You mentioned beeswax here. What is it about beeswax that makes it so good as a as a Furniture polish, or indeed with candles.
1: Okay, so first of all, it's it's a completely natural product. And the bees to make uh, to make beeswax, the bees eat honey, and then out of glands, uh, wax glands on their abdomen, come tiny little flakes of of wax, and they process that, and you know, and and they build it inside in the hive, and, and they put uh, the the, the rear, their young in there, and they put the honey in there and then we process it and when we process it we only use water or steam to clean it we don't use any you know toxic substances it's it's just it's a pure and natural process and that also means that the 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 product itself is pure and natural it doesn't contain any toxins um and it's it's great for for to use with you know in homes that have you know pets and and, you know families kids Uh, people who are sensitive to to allergens and it's something that we've been using for thousands of years any bee products really honey beeswax uh, even propolis um, people have been using for thousands of years uh, just because it's it's pure it's raw it's available and it's, it's very good for us
0: Now, you sell your products because not just the honey, you sell your products, um, Mm. including candles and polishes and all of that uh, in Brown Mm. Thomas, in Arnett, but also abroad. You you have a a strong foreign market in the USA and Canada and other places. What is it about um, those countries that is it the Irishness of it or is it just the quality of the products that that emanate from from you and from here?
1: well i i would have to say the quality obviously <laughs> <laughs> but i think you know it has something to do with uh you know with with the irish aspect as well that's obviously uh, going into the states you know anything irish is is, mm. is very very strong um but i i think you know there is a general movement towards products that are they're more sustainable uh, they're more you know um, re- from renewable sources, uh, ecologically friendly. You know, people like things that make them feel good, and I think my products make people feel good about using them. Though no, I I was the first Irish producer of uh, of reusable beeswax wraps, and that's going back a good few years now. It's actually one of the first products that I uh, that I brought to the market, and it. You know it, I got such a fantastic response to it because people at that stage were really willing they were looking for products that could, could help them make make better choices in their everyday life um and I think that's what we're looking at especially now when we're you know the financial climate is what it is we're looking for things that you know that make us feel better and uh, trust our choices more. do you know what I mean mm. um, that um it, it it's probably down to the fact that resources are so scarce now um, for us that we just need to make sure that the decisions that we make are, are the right ones for mm. us. And I think that my my products are sitting in there um, quite well.
0: I am speaking here on the home show with Hannah Backmo, who's a Swedish uh, Via Cork beekeeper. Uh, Hannah, when we're talking about bees, of course, we have been hearing, and you're talking there about the whole sustainability and naturalness of it, but. We have been warned that in some places, in lots of places, the bee colonies are thinning out, they're dying out because Mm. of just the the increasing building and and climate change and all of that. Do you find that um, it is something that you need to propagate where you are in Cork, like that you have to plant certain things in your garden, maybe particular types of plants or flowers that will encourage Mm -hmm. the colonies
1: yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing that I want to say, kind of before we go into the, the the planting and you know what we can do for the bees, maybe is that you know people are worried about bees, and and often as a beekeeper, it's something that people often say to you that you know oh I hear the bees are dying, or tell me you know what's up, you know what what kind of what what threats are are threatening our our bee colonies, and I think that I have to say there that you know. Our our honeybees are not that much under threat. <laughs>
0: okay, at least I don't feel like
1: that as a beekeeper, because and this is looking at it from a kind of a financial perspective, because there is a commercial value in beekeeping. You know, we we produce honey, we produce beeswax, and we send them, and we also we keep our colonies. Most of our honeybees are kept in colonies by beekeepers, so that means that we have a chance to look after them. You know, we can see when they get sick. Uh, And we can deal with them appropriately. Mm. Now, that's not to say that our bees are under a lot of threats, because are not under a lot of threats, because they are. uh, But I think that what we should be looking at is all the all our native species of bumblebees and solitary bees, of whom we actually know very little, because we haven't been putting the research into those uh, those types of bees uh, as we have into into honeybees, because simply they don't have that you know, commercial value. Mm,
2: um, mm. And I
1: think it, it's really, really important that we're looking at those. Now, obviously, as a beekeeper, you know, I think it's really important that we do what's best for our honeybees as well. Um, but but looking at all our native species of of bees, and that includes honeybees, bumblebees, and our very, very many uh, solitary bees. And I think that in that, when we're looking at that and what we can do for for our bees, it's just really simple things. Uh, maybe you know, don't cut the grass in yeah. May or June when the dandelions are flowering, um, and also if you're if you're planting um, plants or, or, or sowing seeds, uh, make sure that you pick um, you pick native. Irish species, because our native Irish bees have evolved with our native Irish flora, and it 's very very important then that we choose flowers that are actually accessible to our bees that bees can 't access many bees can 't access pollen and nectar from from very kind of elaborate and ornate flowers that oh, have right. a lot of petals in okay. them. OK, that's so, interesting. So mm, like sometimes mm. you think
0: that any flower will do, but actually no. you're, you're right. They have evolved <laughs> to look for and, and to source the ones we yeah. have. Now, let me ask yeah. you um, just finally, Hannah, uh, it's a family affair. Your son is is interested <laughs> also in what you're doing. He's a little, he, what age is he? He has a he has a beekeeping outfit himself, does he? It, he does. He's
1: six now. Um, but, you know, when 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 COVID hit and uh, they they closed the the crashes in, was it uh, March? Yeah, he was three and uh, my bees were getting ready to get into swarming mode. So he uh, he had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> I I got him a bee suit and he had to come with me. There was a bit of bribery involved and you know coaxing and threats and all that kind of stuff. But he's a fantastic beekeeper. Like kids. Kids are great because they they're not afraid of anything you know, mm. um he loves spotting spotting the queens and you know picking up the the drones the the boy bees they, the drones don't have any stingers, so he's not at all afraid of those and <laughs> um, so yeah he he loves the bees uh, nearly as much as I do I think
0: okay, well, it sounds as if beekeeping certainly in cork is in very, very good hands for the future. you have the the most fabulous accent. You have acquired some corcone <laughs> <even> there <laughs> but not not too much and, uh, and congratulations for all that you do uh, Hannah is up on Instagram just remind us of the Instagram handle Yeah, Hannah's Bees Hannah's Bees and of course your, your website okay. is Hannah's Bees too and you can have a look at all of the bees and the products and everything that is going on uh, down there in Little Island in Cork and Hannah thank you so much for joining us on the home show this morning. This is the Home Show podcast with me, Sinead Ryan. The average Irish house takes around half a year to build and costs around €350,000. But a modular home can be built in half the time, costing far less. So, why are we not rolling out these modular homes as a way to progress the housing shortage? Well, to find out, I'm joined by Donal Byrne, MD of B or B Homes, who are specialists in modular homes. Donal, you're very welcome along to the show. Good
2: morning, Sinead. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Now, let's start with the definition.
2: What is a modular home? So, I prefer the word factory or mod. modern methods of construction. It's a house that's built in a factory in a controlled environment using up-to-date and more modern ways of construction rather than the old way of block by block or brick by brick or timber frame. So, we use a form of construction called panelized construction. So, if you imagine your house, it's cut up into 30 panels it's put in a truck and then it's sloshed together on site. Other methods of modular construction that people may be aware of is what we call a fully factory built, like a port cabin where you cut your house into five or six parts like a cake. We don't do that. We see that as shipping air. We fit all the house on one truck by panelizing it. So it's a house that's built in a factory.
0: Now, is it different to a prefab? Because lots and lots of people will be familiar with that in schools and hospitals and other settings. And and while they're very, very good quality, you wouldn't live in one.
2: No, correct. It's not a prefab. And I don't like to be associated with it. And that's why I try and come away from the word modular and go towards factory built. What we build are very much homes people that are living in our houses, are families. They have children. They look like a house. They feel like the house. They are a house. Mm. And this is where I have fear when everybody hears the word modular is going to be used to solve the Ukrainian refugee problem. Uh, A lot of the ones that have been built at the moment and they're not been built by us don't look like a house. They don't resemble a house. It will look like port cabins and you will have a large site filled with port cabins that will not represent or look like a housing estate.
0: Mm. Now, when you're building these homes, these modular homes, I, I mean, I presume the reason that they're cheaper for a start is because all the construction is done off-site and therefore the access that you need on-site is for a much shorter period and it can all be brought over in one go. But I presume you still need your groundworks, your piping, foundations and permissions and all of that.
2: Correct, yeah. So we do all that in-house. So if you come to us and you have a site, we have an in-time, uh, in-house um, engineering team. They will go out, survey the site, we will design the house, we will submit your planning application, dig your trial hole, put the ad in the paper, get your planning... Uh, put in your commencement notice and then groundworks are the exact same as you're building a your normal house. There's no difference there, except instead of bringing out the block layer and all that, it comes in a truck, it's slotted together in a matter of days, um, and then the usual process takes between six and eight weeks, weather depending and depending on the size of the house from start to finish. Uh, what you're eliminating is the slow wet trades of block laying, mm. uh, the plastering, and what you're also eliminating is the slow cut roofs where you're cutting each rafter individually and slotting and nailing it in. Instead, the roof comes very much formed. You drop in your power lines, you drop on your sheeting, you put your slate effect over it. So you're taking away the slate by slate slow process, the block by block slow process, and you're modernizing it. Okay. And the-
0: so, so that makes a lot of sense, and that explains why it's cheaper and faster. Why, though, Donald, are we just not doing more of these? If it's if it's just as good, and families are living there, and you have all the benefits that you've outlined, why are we not building these all over the place?
2: It's a great question, and I suppose what it is, it's it's change, and people are always afraid of change. So, people have had it in their heads in Ireland for years that it has to be block, it has to be brick, stone, um, because of our weather climate that is in the case and the point i always like to bring it back to to make it easy for people to imagine is let's take henry Ford and the car a hundred years ago if we went into henry Ford's factory um it would be very different from where it is now he may have made a car a day now he could make three or four hundred cars a day they're done by robotics they're designed at computers if we go to construction now compared to what it was a hundred years ago there's not a lot of difference the blocks are still put up the same way the wheelbarrows the cement all the slates in the roof the timber the plumbing, it's come a bit but not a lot. It needs Mm. to be modernised and if you go to America and see where they, with their expertise in modular construction, they have factories with robots, the saw um, gets emailed out, the the drawn from the computer, it pulls in the steel or the timber, it cuts it to size, it's put into a frame, another robot drops the plasterboard on top of it and that's what has to happen. Construction has to get more modern. All right. Now you mentioned
0: refugees a little bit earlier. And the OPW has indicated that it's putting aside about 150 million euro to build 500 of these modular homes initially for uh, the Ukrainian refugees. Now, like if that goes ahead and the the money seems to be in place, how long would it take um, to actually, given the land is there, to to put all that in place? I mean, it's not like it is
2: quicker, but you're not talking about instant housing here, are you? you're not in my opinion and what i i've been laughing at this because they've been on about all they're going doing if all of us to build modular houses in the country got together we wouldn't solve the problem in 12 months never mind two years mm. we need to all at it collectively but what they're building and i've seen them they're not houses they're not homes they are glorified port cabins glorified containers it doesn't represent a house. It doesn't look like a house. It doesn't have an A framed roof. It doesn't have a render. It doesn't have a front nor a back. You cannot tell the difference. Okay. So we build houses, and they need to stop using this word houses or homes because when these things are rolled out and the media see them, they're going to think I am associated with that or other companies were not. Mm. Okay. And
0: so, so there is a difference in, in the quality the, and the style and, and the repurposing
2: of it. And, 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 and it plays a part. Going to have, yeah. Okay, You're going to have a graveyard in five years of yards filled with these things or else they're going to be left there but not look the same. They should have took a long term approach and gone with what looks like houses that can be used throughout the future that you don't have to take them down and leave them there as estates for the elderly or affordable housing or social housing.
0: Alright, okay. Well, a warning there from Donal Byrne, uh, MD of B or B Homes, that's Big Red Barn Homes, who are specialists in proper, modular housing. Donal, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. Now, St. Bridget's Day marks the beginning of spring and is a celebration of our female patron saint and women in Irish society. And of course, we are now getting a new bank holiday in honour of St. Bridget. And most of you will be familiar with the popular tradition of making St. Bridget's crosses. So I am delighted to be joined in studio by Aoife Patterson from Wicklow Willow Designs uh, with a, a great number of rushes, which looks extremely optimistic for what I believe we're about to do. So uh, you're very welcome to the Home Show studio. Thank you very much, Nice. You're a former archaeologist, yep, turned basket weaver. I mean, how I where, how did you get there, first of all, before we before we start on the ground? Oh, I'm really putting off the dreaded moment, folks, that we have to start doing it, but how did you get going?
3: Yeah, so um I was an archaeologist for a number of years. So I did I studied archaeology in UCD um and then I worked as an archaeologist for around six years in the commercial sector of archaeology. Um, so I was just like a kind of into college something that kind of took my fancy let's say and then kind of ended up working in it and I absolutely loved it and um, always had an interest possibly from growing up in Glendlock, in you know kind of heritage archaeology history so it's always been kind of something that I've been interested in and um, I suppose then 2008 then the crash came and uh, I was out of work uh, I went back to do an MA uh, in archaeological illustration so I still work as an archaeological illustrator so I still have some some of my my work comes from that still um. but I suppose then it was like I started going in 2004 so it's a bit of a kind of a convoluted <laughs> kind of way around things but um, yeah so in 2004 I went down and my dad my dad started going down basket making to a man called Joe Hogan that's a name that's very familiar mm. Irish mm. basketry and a friend of mine and we went down to him my um, well, dad went down first and he came back with a load of baskets and I was going this is this looks great you know and he went down a second year he came back with a load of baskets and said the next year you're going down I'm definitely going with you yeah. So myself, my dad went down for years, we started going down and then when I suppose it was a hobby, it was just a big interest of mine. And then when the crash came in 2008, that's when I decided, okay, well, this master's that I've just done didn't really work out. Wasn't the right time to be doing archaeological illustration, I can say. And I said, I'll give basket making a go full time. So that's when I started just, I suppose, making baskets, kind of getting more involved and kind of just pursuing it in general, just trying to see if it
0: could work. And here we are now. And work it did. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you are providing all sorts of products, yeah, uh, basketry products and uh, everything down where you are uh, based in, in Lara, down in Wicklow. Now, but today, because we are celebrating St. Bridget's, and I know you were telling me before you came in that you have been doing this for the last week, you've been yeah. making a lot of these crosses. So I, I bow to your expertise before we even get started, but you're going to show me yeah. how to make. Uh, at St. Bridget's Day Cross. Now you have helpfully brought in some absolutely gorgeous examples and actually I'm surprised by the different shapes and sizes because I thought there was only one type yeah. but in fact you have three pronged ones that look a bit like I don't know the Isle of Man symbol. Exactly, yeah. You have two pronged ones that look like a yeah. like a boomerang yeah. and of course and oh and there's even look a six-sided yeah. one here so and how I'm unusual that is. Uh, so what do we have here in front of us and how do we get started? OK, so the first thing
3: we have, I suppose, is the the raw materials, which is the rushes. And I harvested these yesterday uh, up on Turlock Hill. They're still quite damp. Yeah, so yeah, I kept those so outside last out. night in the rain okay. because otherwise they, they dry up very quickly right, because they're, they're yeah. up full of water and they're fresh. So, yeah, you need to kind of keep them a little bit wet before you start okay. to use them. And, um, yeah, you could just kind of they've got them in a, in a bog. So like rushes come from really boggy ground. So that's where you kind of find them, bad ground or very wet ground. Um, And then, as you were saying, we have a few examples of the different crosses that are made from rushes. So crosses in Ireland are made from rushes, but they can also be made from willow. So there's different kind of parts of the country will make different types of crosses, depending, I suppose, on what's available to them and then also just what they're familiar with.
0: Yeah. And I suppose the heritage and there's a lot of cultural um, history around this and people would have made, you know, using what materials were on their doorstep. How are we going to get started? Okay, so we'll get going, will we, for the
3: forearms cross? Yeah. So like you said, that's... <laughs> let's give it a go. <laughs> that's the most familiar, the iconic okay, one. All right, yeah. yeah. So we're going to take one up. Taking in our, one up, right. Yeah. Okay, I have it here, yeah. Got it in your left hand there. Okay. Yeah. And then we're going to take a second one up. All right, okay. Okay. And then holding this one between your finger and your thumb, yeah. you're going to pinch it. Oh, right. Okay, and yeah, you're just going to... Yeah, you kind of okay. feel that kind of... There's a kind yeah. of a spongy material in the middle of these crosses, yeah? Yeah. Okay, so when you put it then behind... This here, so that what you're going to do okay. is you're going to take it that kind of that part that yeah. you pinched, yeah. Put it. That's the centre over there. Put it at the back of that horizontal one, right? And then just bend it up towards the ceiling.
0: Oh, I see. Okay, so actually, it, it naturally nearly does it, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of pinches okay. it, kind of
3: really holds it. And then the whole thing, the key about making a St. Bridget's cross is that they're they're quite until they're they're made, they just fall apart. So you mm. have to. Keep it tight. Okay, So hold on to it. It was a
0: warning you're dead, right?
3: Okay. And then we're going to turn it clockwise to our right. Okay. Okay. We're going to get another piece. Anyone at all there. They're all well graded and ready to go.
0: So so far, mine looks like yours. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) Okay. So next one. Yeah. Again, each time now you take a rush, you're going to give it a pinch pinch. in the centre.
0: Okay. You're
3: going to put it at the back of the ones that are folded, the ones that are on the right hand side. Oh, here now. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to put it at the back. So you're going to place it at the back of them like this. At the back of it. Oh,
0: I see what you mean. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. Now it's a bit fiddly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I need three hands now. You don't, but I do. Okay. Okay. At the back. Where did I put my pinch?
3: Yeah. And if you just see here. Yeah. If you're holding it like that and you place it at the back of all of them like that. Oh, my God.
0: Right. Okay.
3: Yeah. OK, and then what you're going to Keep do going. is, yeah, you fold it up to the top. So what you're doing is you're folding. This new one,
0: I'm folding. Yeah, and okay. it folds.
3: If you can see there, it kind of folds over the other one. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not. Mine isn't linked to anything there. Yeah. So
0: that's what okay. I need. to do, I need to do it that way, don't I? OK. Right. OK.
3: Yeah. Uh, find, find it kind of hard there. That's OK. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit tricky. It's, it's one of these things that, right. yeah. OK. And then what we're going to do is once we've got that put together. Right. We're going to turn. Another one. (laughs) Yeah. So we've only got three at the moment. So we need to have a fourth arm. Okay. So we're going to turn again clockwise. That way? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So we have a T-shaped. So the opposite way, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So if we're going to hold it like this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. T-shaped. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and then take the next one, and give yeah. it a pinch. Okay. Have again, it. on the right hand side at the back. So you see yeah. the way it's going at the back of all of Yeah. Again. Yeah. And then you turn it, and up turn it from up. the bottom towards ah, the top. Ah. Now yeah. I have four. Yeah we're, getting, yeah. we're good. We're good. So it well, locks. There see, we are. And it, it locks that in again. So each one that you add to it kind of locks in the previous one.
0: Right. So I can see now there's a pattern forming. So yeah. the first couple. Do you know what? It's not unlike a knitting pattern in the sense that you can you can kind of as long as you. Can keep the vision in your head about where you're supposed to go with all of them. Yeah. It's a case then of slotting them in and not losing your concentration. No, no. How quickly can you make one of these, do you think?
3: I've never timed myself now. I don't know.
0: Do <laughs> <want>? <laughs> I can put a few in if you'd like to. But I'd say you can make them. You you carry on, right? Yeah. I think I've probably come to the end of my St. Bridget's journey. Um, yeah. And I'm sure absolutely certain nobody will want mine. But these are, these are fantastic. So you carry on making yours there which are flying along there now. So that's definitely uh, a lot, a lot faster than me. What types of baskets are there? Because I know we've heard of the creel and there are uh, skibs, but, but tell us the different types. Is it about how they're made or what they're for? So um, I suppose it's a bit
3: of both really. The skibs is a, it's a very traditional basket, it's sort of a very common basket that you see um, made in Ireland and there's different variations of the skib. So that's a basket that I'd make quite a lot and it's very popular. So it's quite a shallow basket and traditionally it was used for potatoes. So it's mm. kind of, a, it's associated hugely with potatoes mm-hmm. and all manner of things to do with that. Um, you have a few different bases. Um, some of the ones that I've learned is kind of like a closed base then you have one which is a grid base which has got these kind of little kind of holes in it and then that can vary f- on the amount of holes that are at the bottom of the base and then you have one which is a Joyce country base which is from the Joyce country
0: okay okay
3: so you have all these different variations and there's probably more than that but that's
0: and is it an art form that is is in any sense of revival or is it or is it dying out i think
3: it's it's definitely in some like it's definitely there's a huge interest in basket making Um, the amount of courses that we do and the amount of interest in terms of just wanting to learn, you know, how to make a simple basket, you know, like just maybe it might only be once off, it might be something that people come back to and people are definitely using them again with the interest, Mm -hmm. I suppose, massive interest in kind of organic food and kind of allotments and that kind of thing, you know. So people like to have a basket for that. So people have baskets for different reasons. Um, But I think also people like to invest in, in local businesses and local crafts. So, I mean, it's a very niche market. It's not something that is, Like I'm never going to have a a massive workshop with Mm. lots of people Mm. working for me like it would have been done with baskets on mass production. Uh, So it's very much like, you know, people are a bespoke product for for our business. So um, and it's kind of one element to kind of many strands of our business. So basket making is one, but it all kind of ties into that one core kind of product, which is the basket making.
0: Okay, And when you are now working with the basket and the weaving and all of that, can you ever see yourself going back to archaeology? Um, no, I'm never going to go
3: back to what I was doing before. I worked as a field archaeologist as um, in, in the commercial sector of archaeology where I was excavating and um, features on a kind of a daily basis. Um, so I'll never go back to that. It was, it was I loved it, but I suppose it has a, a place and time for yeah. me in terms of where you I'm at. You found your passion. Yeah, well, I love basket making. It's now, I,
0: I clearly have not made a great deal of my uh, Bridget's Cross. I think I need a lot more practice. But for anybody who's interested in the basket weaving, you are working with workshops and people who can come down and have a look at what you're doing and give it a go themselves.
3: Yeah, so I do courses in basket making. So you asked me there a few minutes ago the kind of you know baskets that I make. So a lot of people come down to me kind of on one day, two day, kind of three day courses where they make um, log baskets or they make kind of skibs, shopping baskets, creels. Um, I do a lot of sculptural workshops as well. So I end up, there's a, a massive interest in just doing willow sculptures. So I kind of do the traditional end of it, which is the basketry and the kind of traditional mm. kind of forms that would be made. And then I kind of have this kind of whole stream of stuff, which is non-functional stuff. So people making all sorts of sculptures for their gardens. So they'll come on two day courses and they'll have like images or they'll have some kind of idea. And it's a very different construction method. So that's kind of, you have the traditional and then
0: you have this kind of free kind of contemporary type. Absolutely and stuff wonderful. And you're, you're keeping it on for a new generation. So where can people find out more uh, about you, Efa?
3: Yeah, so wicklowwillow.ie is our website and then we you can book courses on our website. Okay, so and you've
0: got, you have a workshop running uh, this weekend on Sunday, uh, tomorrow and Monday.
3: Yeah, that's yeah. it. Tomorrow and Monday we're in uh, Beyond the Trees in Avondale. So we've got uh, two, two, well, yeah, 11 to 1 both of those days just in St. Bridges' Crosses. So that's kind of the end of my journey with St. Bridges' Crosses for this year anyway, I think. We've been booked out last week and we're like all this week and on into Monday. Isn't that a fantastic? Monday. Yeah, yeah. No, it's unbelievable. Well, in
0: the very short time you've been talking to me there, you've been multitasking and you have arrived with a perfect St. Bridget's yeah, Cross. That's it. It's, it's nice. <laughs> and so. Well done. It's, it looks absolutely marvellous. Uh, I'm going to put a picture up now uh, to let everybody else have a look at what you're doing now. And you're just tying it off now and finishing it. And that is absolutely marvellous. Uh, Aoife Patterson from Wicklow, Willow. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really good. The it's great to be on of Bridget's crosses. You're welcome back to the Home Show podcast. As always, you can get your questions into us or email us at any time at thehomeshow@newstalk. at com. We are joined once again by neve Marr from thejournal.ie. Niamh, you're very welcome back to studio. You are here to talk about all things cutlery. We did an item a few weeks back on mugs and we got photographs of mugs and favourite mugs and least favourite mugs and pictures of mugs and Love all that, that kind of thing. So we thought, do you know what? Uh, the other thing that, of course, everybody has in their kitchen and everybody has favourites of.
4: Yeah. Is cutlery. Absolutely. I love that you got such a good reaction to the mug one because I was I was thinking about it and do you know what it is? It's the everyday items I think that people have the biggest connections to and cutlery is one of those things. I mean, mm. I think sometimes people can think of it as potentially not the sexiest thing to talk about, no, but it's important. Oh, it's important, Jen.
0: Nothing turns me off a restaurant more than than kind of weird cutlery that I can't I'm not comfortable using to know round handled things for instance drive me completely potty but anyway let's start with a little bit of a history lesson how did we get from Neanderthal man using (laughs) their hands (laughs) up to you know silver service
4: well this is it I I was really excited when you kind of said to me why don't you go and do a bit of shopping around cutlery because I was thinking do you know what I don't know a lot about I don't know a lot about the history of cutlery so I went all the way back and did a little bit of research and you're dead right the first cutlery that any of us used was our hands of course and actually a lot of cultures still around the world still do use their hands I mean fingers it has the natural scoop method which uh, is good and actually some uh, some places in the world believe that it has some good health benefits as well because of finger flora now I don't I really want a posh way of saying germs. Yeah, <laughs> it's what's under your nails. To be honest with you. So if we were to maybe park the finger flora for a moment, oh, babies and, uh, use their hands. First absolutely, I mean, we I mean, encourage it, don't we? Exactly, definitely. And there's like ayurvedic elements to eating, which ties into kind of ancient scripture when it comes to the sensory experience of eating. So. Bringing that through to actually how we use cutlery today, you know, it really does affect the way in which we consume our food. And they do say that it should be a sensory, sensory rather experience. Now, the thing is, knives and spoons, they were the first. So literally a thousand BC, before forks were even a glint in the eye, there were knives and spoons. Blades were used as tools going all the way back to the Paleolithic times. But of course, they weren't necessarily used for food. They were used for cutting things i don't know hunting all the paleolithic things that people did back then and but eating with them was definitely new they started to do it around 1000 bc with iron knives now of course you're using iron it's going to have an effect on the taste Mm. so eventually let's skip forward to roman times and they started to use different cutlery which came into play different metals such as bronze pewter and silver and also in Roman times they started to think about the aesthetic of cutlery mm, as well Decorating which is it and making it look nice and maybe as
0: a, a kind of status symbol if you had all that available for your guests it beat a dagger on a board every day of the week
4: Exactly and that's when forks came into play as well so I mean that's the thing that I think it obviously has a huge history um, but I think when people started to consider the aesthetics of it was when it became you know a really important part of everyday life and then, of course, now we skip to modern times and it's all about tablescapes. We've spoken about it before on this show. Have, it's all about... Very
0: important. Exactly. At different festivals and Easter and Christmas and all those times, people love decorating their tables. It's become such an important thing.
4: 100%. And actually, when it comes to flatware and cutlery in particular... When I was hosting Christmas this year, it was the first time that I really thought about not only cutlery, but how much cutlery I had and whether or not I could actually have more than four people over for dinner at a time. So, Yeah, it's a funny thing because there's that etiquette. I mean,
0: you can go back to kind of Victorian or Edwardian times and they had like, you know, six course meals, they had six sets of cutlery and there was always this thing. Do you remember that scene in Pretty Woman? Yes. Where Julia Roberts sits down and she's, like looking at all these different pieces of she has no idea where to start
4: she doesn't know where to start no. that's what well, I that was kind of outside in rule isn't isn't that really exactly well pretty much any romantic comedy they, they seem to do a bit on the intimidating factor of cutlery and of flatware as in you have somebody sitting there they're intimidated by the general sense of what's happening at the dinner and they don't know where to start mm, mm. with their cutlery so we have
0: got more casual of yeah. late and, and I would kind of venture in the last maybe 20, 30 years, it's okay to have people for dinner and just have one
4: Set of cuts, just one knife, one fork, and one spoon, isn't it? 100%. You know, I was looking up all the different types of cutlery and flatware that you can have, and to be honest with you, it was a little bit overwhelming. And you don't need all of those types of cutlery, especially if you're hosting a dinner party. Like running through some of the different ones, you've got your dinner fork, your salad fork, your dessert fork, then you move into your tablespoon, which is actually the spoons confuse me, Sinead. I'm not going to lie, because the tablespoons and the teaspoons are not Noss, what you think they would be in terms of measurements. You know the way in cooking they have measurements of a tablespoon mm. a teaspoon. So tablespoons are actually traditionally in flatware terms larger than the spoon that you would use to eat a dish with, but smaller than a ladle. So it can get a little bit confusing oh, as well. And also, I mean at dessert, does
0: anybody at home on their own have a fork and a spoon to eat their dessert with? I mean you don't. You just have I mean, whatever's nearest I thing.
4: honestly I, I would be more of a finger food when it comes to dessert as well. Exactly. Bring on the bring on the flora. Exactly. Now you went and off and had a
0: little look mm. um, at uh, trends. Now yeah, look okay. So trends. Forks, forks, fork. Forks, <laughs> a fork is, is a, it not, Neve?
4: A fork is a fork is a fork. <laughs> but what you'll start to see is people really focusing on the way in which their cutlery looks, So I actually found a really nice piece in Vogue that was talking about the different trends when it comes to cutlery. And so you've got gold is a big trend at the moment, matte flatware as well is a big trend, and black is a big trend as well. So I'll go a little bit of detail. Yeah, black. So it's kind of the more edgier and the more dramatic and you can go for lots of different styles of black cutlery as well. Curved, cylindrical, teardrop as well, which is kind of a more classic Classic one, um, the matte flatware I love. But I have to say, I'm also a fan of things that are easy. And sometimes with the mat, you need to be cautious about how you're washing, washing it as it, well, because yeah. it's made of metal. Zoom Ex- exactly, as well. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but the matte flatware I think brings a sophistication to it. It has kind of a modern farmhouse vibe as well, which I love. And you can get matte in yellow gold as well as silver, copper, charcoal as well as beautiful rose gold. Oh, bury me with matte cutlery, <laughs> Um And then gold, of course. I mean, you want to really impress people when they're coming over, have a little glint of gold on your table. Why not? So yellow gold is a big style trend at the moment. Flatware, it it kind of feels... It feels fresh, but it also feels very traditional. Like I mentioned, you can get them in very traditional shapes and you can get really nice handles with high polish finish as well with mm. gold. So mm. I think gold is a big trend when it comes to cutlery. And of course the cutlery
0: set or the cutlery canteen is the traditional wedding present, isn't it? Oh yes. And and people like now remember when I got married a million years ago, um the the cutlery canteen, you know, that king's head kind yeah. of silver, the new bridge, kind of that that was yeah. really not only the most popular, it was kind of pretty much the only one that you'd yeah. you'd ever give as a gift that's all changed now but people still like getting it
4: absolutely that's one of my picks actually that's one of my picks when I went shopping and also I was gifted Newbridge silver yeah. as cutlery for my wedding and I used it at Christmas as well because I was like we only have four knives what are we going to do? Nobody's <laughs> going to come over again. But it's the
0: kind of thing you can add to as yeah. time goes on oh, um, as long absolutely. as they don't discontinue the line which is always annoying but you can add to it and make it six or eight or whatever.
4: Um, well, this is it and I think the thing is you're not going to be thinking about cutlery and flatware unless you're in that stage of your life when you're building a home building a kitchen and you know you, you want to build a collection essentially as you well. Do. Now you found the set in Newbridge a 44 piece set
0: for a very reasonable it looks to me 99 euros this is
4: it 99 euros that's that's okay isn't it that's it that's okay I was it'll last you for for ages this is it I was looking at um, I wanted to get a few different price points so I feel like the Newbridge ones although they're beautiful and in general Newbridge is such a I think it's a lovely brand uh, in comparison to the higher priced one we would say it's middle of the road but a 44 piece gift pack for 99 euro is very reasonable It's something that, as having received it myself, it's great as an addition Mm -hmm. because. As we mentioned earlier, it can be a little bit intimidating. You get everything with this. You get all the knives, all the forks, all the spoons, all the desserts, coffee spoons, everything that you need that you won't think of, mm. you'll get in that okay. Newbridge set, which is fantastic.
0: Now, if you wa- were prepared to blow the budget and you've been inspired and you love your cutlery, what, uh, where did you go? Where I found a nice
4: piece. <laughs> I with? found a really delightful piece, a Christoffel 24 piece flatware set. Lovely. Um, 2,930. Wow. Thir- 8 euro, Sinead. Stay with me, though, because it's 18 carat rose gold, Silver plated, polished finish. You get six table forks, six table knives, six tablespoons, <laughs> coffee spoons. Uh, specially formulated cleaning products will be needed if you're going to spend three grand on your cutlery. But it's beautiful, and I would say it's worth it. And do
0: <laughs> not let your kids near it.
4: Niamh, Mar, you never <laughs> fail to impress us. Just when I think I found
0: the most expensive thing, you blow it out of the water. <laughs> Niamh Mar from the Journal.ie. Thank you for shopping for us again this week, and all things to do with cutlery and let us know what your favourite cutlery is, folks, uh, and whether you would spend €3,000 on, on a canteen. Well, listen, that is all we have time for uh, this week. Thanks for listening to The Home Show podcast. I'm Sinead Ryan. If you'd like to get involved with the podcast, maybe you've a question for us or a topic you'd like us to cover on The Home Show, or maybe you're a designer and would like to share some work with us, well, then don't forget, you can drop us an email at any time during the week at newstalk.com. You can also listen to The Home Show live every Saturday morning from 8 till 9am. Thank you to Eva Breen Producing, On Sound, Stephen McLoon and Peter Malloy.
2: The Home Show with Sinead Ryan, Saturday morning at 8. On News Talk.